We are going to get into the subject matter for today. So uh, if you guys don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and get a Bible. Uh, we started a series two weeks ago. It's the third week into it. Um, we've been looking at the subject of the image of God. And the idea behind this is to dig deeper into some uh, broadly, in some ways, incendiary cultural topics. Uh, what we do typically as a church community on Sunday mornings, we, uh, by way of habit, just take books of the Bible and study through them verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We've been doing that for, I don't know, 23 years um, when my wife and I first planted the church. Um, and uh, every once in a while, we'll take topics and themes, and that's what we're doing right now, is we're just taking uh, topics and themes and trying to understand them. Um, but one of the things that we rec- recognize is that each one of these um, fit underneath a broader category of uh, the image of God. In other words, God created us to image him, to look like him. And so therefore, there are ways in which God designed and created humanity to function and flow. And when it functions and flows in response uh, to how God designed it and created it, uh, you, have, you have peace, you have shalom, the way the Bible describes it. When society or culture or humanity or individuals uh, reject the way that God has designed things, in other words, begin to innovate, begin to become creative, and begin to figure out, uh, we'll give God the middle finger and we'll design our own ways to design culture and society, marriage, life, sexuality, gender, so on and so forth. What ends up happening is you have brokenness. You have brokenness. And therefore, we live in a culture and a society which is uh, uh, horribly broken. And a lot of us are trying to figure out, how do we make sense of this? How do we get by? How do we function? How do we uh, create some form of, of, of life within a culture that's deeply broken? And what we're trying to do is, is to say, let's, what, is it, what does it look like for us as a community to go back and ask a bigger, broader question? So let me, let me show you a quick little slide of what we've been asking for the past few weeks, a uh, bigger, broader question, which is like, what would our community look like if Christ truly was king? There we go, this one. What would it look like if, if our community, uh, within our community, if Christ really truly was king and not these cultural idols of race, gender, sex, I had a, a few from last week, power, comfort, and security, what would it look like for that? Because what we've been saying all along is that the gospel is not just simply about telling you instructions on how to go to heaven when you die. Um, it may involve that, but it's far more than that. It's not less than that, but it's far more than that. It involves God actually designing, creating a brand new culture and society. Um, we call that the church. And so what we actually believe is that this thing called the church, this community, the society of Jesus, if you would, all right? Not the Jesuits, but the true society of Jesus. God's people, when they function and flourish together in a way out of obedience to King Jesus, there is a way by which people treat each other with a various form of dignity and value and respect that's distinct from the world. It's not just simply living by a certain set of principles, doesn't involve that, but it also involves critiquing and analyzing and unmasking certain cultural idols that actually may be informing and destroying the way that we live. So, for example, what we said last week is that much of what we see within our world today The reason why there's racism is because there is idolatry of race. For example, when one culture society says or determines or votes or uh, determines that our race is better than another race, uh, you have racism. You you have sort of uh, an over-dependence upon one's uh, physical identity or racial background 
and therefore they feel they have a platform now to judge or come condescendingly, uh, uh, look condescendingly upon others that are unlike them. It literally is taking a good thing, which God designed, called race, and elevating it to a God thing, and therefore we have idolatry. And therefore, as a result of idolatry, you have racism. But the same is true for all these other things. Sex, gender, power, comfort, security, and all these other things. Good things. Good things that God created. All of which. I mean, if you look at this, race, gender, sex, power, comfort, security, all of these things, I would, I would argue and say they're all good. So some would say, well, power is bad, right? No, absolutely not. Power is not bad. God has all of it. Right? The problem is, is right, theologically, right, God has all of it. God, but God uses power in a way to pick up who, those who are powerless. That is a proper usage of power that is for the benefit of others. When power becomes abused or misused, you have an idolatry, idolatrous relationship with this thing called power. So again, the question is, what would it look like for our community, uh, or what, what would our community look like if Christ was king and not these cultural idols of race, gender, so on and so forth? So one other thing, uh, again, we've been asking, why are we doing this series? I'll go through this again if you guys missed this, and probably this might be the last week I say this, just in case if you were not here for the first two. So one is for clarity and comfort. We realize that these topics um, are oftentimes scenarios and situations within our culture that might put the broader community people, even those within our church, within a state of having troubled hearts and unsettled minds. So we want to be good pastors, the leaders of this church, the elders of this church, want to do the best that we can to try to inform and address and speak to some of these potential incendiary subjects and topics that actually might be causing you insane levels of grief and anxiety, right? We want to be good pastors. Number two is for biblical faithfulness, because these topics, while widely uh, hugely political, first and foremost, each one of them are biblically addressed. It means the Bible has a lot to say about these things. So uh, we believe that as being Jesus people, Jesus followers in this community and culture, it's important for us to know what Scripture has to say about these things. So we want to be faithful to Scripture. Thirdly, for discipleship, because we realize that at the end of the day, all these circumstances and moments of crisis, if you would, within our culture and scenarios where there is chaos, these actually become discipleship moments. The question then is, how do you as a follower of Jesus live your faith out in a way that is actually productive and helpful and godly without succumbing to the broader cultural cross-currents or giving in or compromising, but actually remaining faithful to Jesus in the midst of those things? In other words, it is a matter of discipleship. We want to see you guys, all of us, become uh, people who faithfully follow Jesus within this world. So those, those are it. One final thing I want to say before we pray and jump in. As I realized last week, for example, we looked at the subject of gender. And uh, um, based upon the, which if you see in the very bottom here, slide two, um, if you guys have questions, you can add those uh, to this. You just go to the website and type in the code, and uh, it will bring you to the thing. And then hopefully it's all self-explanatory, so I don't have to spend time explaining that. You can just punch in that code, and you can either upvote questions or you can add your own. Um, last week I told you I was going to do the best that I can to try to get to answering some of those. I wasn't necessarily able to. So here's what I'd say real quick. Um, I realize that the subject matter that we'll be talking about may actually create you know, 10 more questions that are in your mind. Um, I only have about 45 minutes, 50 minutes. I mean, I'll preach for two hours if you guys want. I don't think the kids back there would be very appreciative of that or the mom and dads who actually have to deal with them the rest of the day. Uh, so I have about 45, 50 minutes to do the best that I can to tackle as much as I can, which means there's a lot that I'm not going to say. Okay? 
There's a lot that I'm not going to say, and that happened last week. Um, I want to do the best that I can to address as much stuff as I could. Last week, I felt like I had to start somewhere on the subject of gender. Um, it's a big, think of it as a big swimming pool. I had to jump in somewhere. I had to jump in somewhere. So I jumped in where I did, and uh, what my, the main things I really wanted to try to uh, communicate last week on the subject of gender, the main conclusions were basically that God actually cares about women, especially women who are marginalized and are silenced and are domineered by other men, that God actually cares about women, and therefore, because God cares about women, so should, so should men, so should men. So should the church, primarily, so should the church, that God actually cares about voiceless women, women that are abused. God also cares about men that are abused. So um, again, that may have raised a lot of questions, like where do you go uh, if a woman is abused or you're in an abusive relationship? Um, to, uh, look, help is available. We want to be a community where we can do the best we can to try to help you. So again, maybe I did not address that or answer that question last week uh, clearly, but if you are in a situation where there is abuse in your home or in the context of your life. Um, uh, you know, there, there are places that are set up within culture to try to help. Uh, as a church, we would do the best that we can to try to help you. So if you do have needs like that, please contact someone. Talk with somebody. Don't uh, suffer in silence. So again, I realized that there was a lot that I could have said last week. I didn't say, and that was uh, strategic. It was purposeful. It was mainly to get the ball rolling, to jump into the pool and begin to address it. So what I realized from that is, it, again, it raised some really important and I think very good questions based upon some of the Slido comments and upvoted questions that were on there um, about really what, what are the roles then of male and female. And that's what I want to talk about today is the subject of male and female gender roles. So that's what we're going to be taking a look at. You're welcome. So I want to pray real quick, and then we'll get to work taking a look at this really important subject, I, I think really important, because uh, where there is uncertainty or unclarity about this, you, you have confusion. And, and I think much of our culture and society um, is very confused. What, what are gender roles? What does it look like? Is it traditional? Um, is it progressive? What, who gets to define them? Uh, it's a really important question that I think uh, deserves answering, and I think the Bible actually has a lot to say about that, which we want to try to look at. So let me pray. We'll jump in. God, we pause, and we just welcome you here in this place. You alone, Lord, as Peter said have the words of life. God, much of the narrative, the script that we feed off of in this world that we hope to bring satisfaction to us actually ends up leaving us feeling broken, more wounded, more distraught, more discouraged, more disillusioned than ever. And God, you promise to give life to those that are broken, and overtaken by anxieties. So Holy Spirit, come now in this place, in our hearts, in this time, and awaken our senses, our understanding, our mind, God, to learn from you, to grow, to have a posture before you, God, that's one of humility and openness, and as well a posture towards our neighbor, uh, that's one of humility and love. So God, help us now, we pray, and we pray. 
pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Okay, I'm just going to jump right in. So here we go, number one. Number one, um, how do gender roles differ? Like, let's just jump right into the deep end here, all right? We're just going to jump right in and just take a look at the obvious. So there are two mainly obvious things. Again, this is just, this is not biblical, first of all. I mean, this is like obvious. Like, you open your eyes, you're going to breathe and think that, that these are the things. So first of all, biological. Uh, there was a point when uh, the doctor saw you as you came into this world and said, it's a boy seconds after you were born, and because you had, you had uh, boy stuff. Or said, it's a girl because you had girl stuff, or the absence of boy stuff. And uh, really, at the end of the day, this is like DNA from our conception. Um, secondly, we see the idea of functionality, that there's something about maleness and femaleness that's more than just simply anatomy, that men were made to impart life in women in ways uh, that women will never be able to. All right? This is just obvious functionality. Uh, there's, there's a sense in other, for us to be able to have children, for us to be able to procreate, uh, there's something unique. All right, this is like anatomy 101 for you guys, what, seventh grade, sixth grade, I don't know. Um, but the fact of the matter is, there, uh, like a, it's just the way that uh, human beings, males and females, are functionally made. Women are, are made in a unique way to both sustain and nurture children. Sustain and nurture children. So a woman, shocking, miracle of, of of conception, carrying a child, it's mind-blowing to me how a body is designed in such a way that can actually hold and carry a child, and uh, it's, it's just part of this miracle of how God designed both male and, and female in unique ways. So we see not only biologically, but we also see a sense of functionality. Um, that's why you really cannot separate gender from gender roles, because really, at the end of the day, they, they overlap too much. Next one is, really, what is all of this mean? What does all this mean? So the fact of the matter is, is that most, most would, would, few disagree, I should say, with the biological or functional distinctives, right? Most, all right? Most would recognize that these things are, are obviously things that distinguish maleness from femaleness. Yet there's a strong disagreement that's typically over what does it all mean? It's really the question of interpretation. Like, how do we interpret? How do we determine? What does all this mean? What, is, what does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female? These are the questions of interpretation that, for the most part, has society in a cultural gridlock. So what effect, if any, does it have upon how, how I live? So what does this concept of maleness or this concept of femaleness, how does that impact the way that I live? What does it say about my marriage? What does it say about singleness, family, the church, culture at large? So these are important questions. These are important questions. Um, so these are the things that we really want to begin to try to think about and consider. So how do we know what differences are hardwired? All right, here's, here's where it gets kind of nitty-gritty. How do we know what differences are actually hardwired in our DNA by a good creator, God, and which ones are actual cultural constructs? In other words, which ones are actually residue from cultural baggage? How do we distinguish between the two? Like, what's hardwiring by God? What's just simple cultural baggage? So this kind of brings up into the third thing, the challenge of cultural cross-currents. The challenge of cross-cultural, uh, a lot of season is sentence here, but um, the challenge of cultural cross-currents. So the fact of the matter is, we are literally caught within these cross-currents of, of culture. There's lots of 
uh, voices and ideas and wind that's being blown around, basically saying here's one way to think about life and live and whatnot. So one tide says there's no difference between the sexes and is ultimately working overtime to emasculate men and erase the feminine side of women, right? So on one side of this question, this cultural cross-current, there is a constant undermining of what maleness is and what femaleness is by basically saying there's no distinction, there's no difference. Um, what a woman can do is exactly what a man can do. What a man can do is what a woman can do. And again, uh, theoretically, as just simply functionally and biologically incorrect. Because a man, there's some things that men cannot do that women are incredibly gifted at doing, like bearing children. All right, it's obvious, right? Um, but what, how does that play out in the bigger, broader scope and scheme of life? I mean, uh, this is what I want to begin to think about and consider. The other current is actually uh, pressuring us to fit into all sorts of stereotypes that really, at the end of the day, most of us are seldomly really um, uh, synchronized with or even, for the most part, relate to. So um, I, I want to think about some of these stereotypes. So I, I did, next slide, I actually did a Google search because I was just like, I'm, I'm curious, what does, what comes up when you do like a Google search for uh, maleness, masculinity? Next slide. Is it working? There we go. Okay, so these are the top three. These are top three images, all right? So I, I thought it was kind of interesting. The top three images. One is like this Neanderthal-looking guy. He's picking up a rock, so apparently that's male. Like maleness, like uber maleness is picking up a big rock over your head and some form of dead animal uh, uh, around your body. Next is, I don't know, some guy that spends a lot of time in the gym and probably takes a lot of selfies. Um, third guy is, you can't really read this. It just says man card. I have no idea who did this. But again, these are top three searches in Google. It's awesome. It says this. It says, build a shed. This, apparently, these are qualifications, qualifiers. So if you really want to be a man, like be a man, you've got to build a shed. You've got to hunt a, uh, uh, hunt a wild animal and eat it. Travel to a different continent. Uh, complete a 10-mile hike without taking a break. Uh, save a human life. Um, climb a mountain. Forge a knife. Come on, forge a knife. You really want to be a dude, forge a knife. Uh, spent 24 hours in the wilderness. Okay, I'm not going to keep going. But you get the idea that there's obviously these distortions as to what is true maleness. And it gets kind of worse when you begin to think about this. One uh, author actually had written something to this idea is that if you ever heard someone say, stop crying, it's not manly, who gets to determine that? Who says that? Like, who, who gets to make that rule and say, maleness equals never shedding a tear? But see, these, this is cultural baggage that plays into how we shape and think about maleness and then ultimately femaleness. So, so again, it gets even worse when you begin to think about this. The concept or the construct of, like, be a man. Okay, what, what does that mean? Who, who gets to determine what, what a man looks like? Um, this one guy in this author, this article goes on to describe some unique ways. I love how he describes it. He says, so there are all sorts of distortions within our stereotypes of masculinity and culture. He says, uh, which one should I be? One, he describes the 007 man who's stylish, tough, rugged, smooth, a womanizing kind of man. The next he describes is the NASCAR driver dude who is a drink a six pack every night and work on my Chevy type of a guy. He describes another as a mogul. This is the power suit. I have everything type of man. The next guy is a tough guy. This is the bro man who spends every evening at 24-hour fitness looking at himself in a mirror. So the question is, um, so all of these are stereotypes of what it means to be a man. The guy going to Home Depot, eating red meat, driving a truck, and oh yeah, whatever happened to the mentality, don't 
cry. So, so the question is, what happens if you don't fit any of those? What happens, you know, we lose sight of the fact that there was a point in a time within our culture long ago where what it meant to be a man was to construct uh, poetry and to contribute uh, some measure with to music. And uh, we forget oftentimes that it was the fact that it was a man that uh, carved David or who painted the Sistine Chapel. Uh, it was a man that actually wrote a love story, the greatest love story, right? Romeo and Juliet. It was a man. And, and these were pictures of manliness within an ancient or you know, distant culture. So the fact of the matter is, uh, what happens if in our culture you are artistic and you don't like NASCAR, you don't play sports, you listen to classical music and you drink tea? Are you any less of a man? What happens if you're a dude that's not married or never had sex or trying to be a virgin until the moment you give your life away to another girl? Are you less of a man? Well, apparently Jesus never had sex, never was married. Is he less of a man? So the question is, who gets to say this? Who gets to determine manness or maleness? Who gets to determine and say this? And secondly, whoever is saying this, wherever these voices are coming from, why do we have to submit our lives to this narrative that's simply a construct of culture and society at large? Why submit to that? So the list for women is actually in some ways even worse. Again, this author of this article goes on and describes stereotypes of a woman. He says, you know, uh, which woman should she be? Should she be the smart, educated gal that I have my act together professional with just a little bit of makeup and not too much, he goes on to say, or the loyal stay-at-home homeschooling mom who packs her husband a brown bag lunch every day, or the tan, thin, aloof sex goddess that men trip over, or what about the all Natural, outdoorsy, no makeup at all girl who spends her days off hiking or juicing spirulina. So the question is, like, obviously there's all sorts of options for women as well. Like, which one do you choose? Which one is truly femininity? So the next slide, I thought it was kind of funny. I looked up feminine women. These were the top three. Top three. So again, apparently, according to, and I'm not saying that, you know, someone uh, constructed this and said this is the way it's going to be. I'm just saying this is the types of research or the searches that are popping up informing the way that we think about femininity. So minds that are asking the question, what does a feminine woman look like? These are top three searches in Google. And every one of them are, are, are drop-dead gorgeous, beautiful, according to the standards of this world. So what happens if that's not you? What happens if you don't have long, pretty, blonde hair or wear pink or have flowers in your hair or have some sort of a nice, soft filter on your reality, your aura? <laughs> what happens if that's not you? You just, are you any less of a woman? Like, who gets to define this? This is what I'm trying to say. And my point is simply to establish the reality is that when we approach the subject of manness and femaleness, we're not approaching a blank canvas. We have been conditioned to think about maleness and femaleness in some form of way. What I'm throwing out to you is at least for the sake of your life, and flourishing, let the Bible also be a voice that speaks to you too. Hopefully the most important, most significant voice of all. So what, what does the Bible have to say about these types of things? So what I want to do, next slide, is we'll begin to ask some bigger questions. What, that, that, the fourth one is the, the Bible, which is our God-breathed navigational system. All right? I, I made that up. But when you think about it, it's like a GPS. It guides us. It leads us. It, is, it claims to be the definitive voice for us to follow. 
It's the idea of, of authority. It's authoritative, that we're actually called to trust the Scripture and to allow it to not only inform, but ultimately to transform how we think, live, and treat others. Now, we shouldn't be shocked by this, because every other voice in our culture is expecting us to follow suit. So don't be shocked by this. Don't be surprised. Don't be upset at this. Just recognize it is the voice, it's the authoritative voice that says, if you follow this path, you will have life. But every other voice is really saying the same thing, but always is a bill of goods. So the question of authority is really significant and important in terms of the Bible. What I want to do in a second here is uh, there, there is uh, what's described hermeneutics. It's really the art of interpretation. How do we take this ancient document, it's 2,000 plus years old, and allow it to begin to inform and transform our lives. There's some really important things I want to do the best that I can to try to equip you guys with to think about in the limited time that we have together here. But first, I want to read a quote from a super helpful book that uh, I had read, uh, written by Kathy Keller. She's the wife of Tim Keller, Timothy Keller. She wrote this book called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. And I'll actually, at the very end, have some resources for you to think about and to, uh, to look at at the very end. So she says this. She goes, uh, and she actually describes in this just before this that she actually started off life as a, as a young, uh, late teenager, early 20-something, uh, uh, with extreme feministic-type roles and way of thinking. And she began to think about, rethink, how does Scripture inform and transform the way that one is to think about the subject of gender roles? So here's what she says. She goes, it was actually a very simple question that resolved the deeper issue of whether or not the Bible was authoritative. That's the real big question here. It's a big issue here. So, and I would even say that you have to think about this because this is probably the most important gateway. If you can think about the subject of authority and your heart, your heart is like a, a door. It's a big, big door that if you choose to open it to whatever scripture has to say could potentially radically transform and change your life. Or you can stand there with the door shut and say, I, don't, I, don't, I will not entrust the inners of my life to this thing called the authority of scripture. So Kathy goes on to describe, she goes, Jesus trusted the inspiration of the Old Testament. He quoted scripture at every point in his life. She goes on to say, so if I trusted Jesus to be who he said he was, why wouldn't I also trust his view on the authority and the inerrancy of the scriptures? This was a game-changing realization for me. Now that I trusted God's word as truth written to aid my flourishing and not to diminish it, my choices needed to be submitted to scripture. When my choices and God's commands clashed, he won. I like the way she describes that. So what and how, how do we think about this ancient book? How do we allow it to speak to our hearts? And again, uh, if you've spent any time reading the scripture, or if you listen to any of the pundits, modern pundits, look at scripture, oftentimes they will argue and say that the Bible actually is this deeply sexist, misogynistic book that should not be trusted. So if you've allowed that cross-current uh, culturally to inform or transform or influence the way you think about the Bible, then you will keep that door of your heart solidly shut. But I love the way Kathy describes this. She goes, at the end of the day, Jesus deeply trusted the scriptures. So if Jesus trusted the scriptures and I trust Jesus, then there would be an incongruency or an inconsistency if I say, I trust Jesus for my salvation, but I don't trust the scriptures that Jesus quoted all the time. That's an incongruency. What she's saying is that because Jesus trusted the scriptures, so could I entrust my heart to allow the scriptures to speak to them. But that raises all sorts of questions because it's a big book. 
And there's lots of things in there that are very confusing, and especially lots of things in there that seem to be absolutely 100% out of sync with modern society. But that shouldn't shock us. It's an ancient book. It was written in ancient time. It's God's word. And even if it was just simply written in modern time, or let's say, for example, the Bible is written today, that even stuff that God has to say, would it or would it not be out of sync with society? Of course it would be out of sync with society. Why? Because it's, it's from another dimension, another realm. It comes from God. Uh, if, if it was perfectly in sync with culture and society at large, then that would mean that heaven and earth are in complete agreement with each other, which we know that right now, heaven and earth are not in complete agreement with each other. That's why there's sexism. That's why there's gender inequality. That's why there's racism. That's why there are all these uh, forms of destruction and death on this planet. Because it's not in agreement with God. So, what we're going to begin to think about and consider, there's three ways to think about Scripture. And I'll go through these very quickly. Um, and again, these are just what would be described as hermeneutical principles to think about and to consider. Ways by which to help you take Scripture and think about it. So, number one. Number one. Scripture does not contradict Scripture. Very first Hermeneutical, hermeneutical principle. There's all sorts of other ones, but I'm just going to go through these three ones that she actually outlines in, in the book, uh, Jesus, Justice, and I can't remember the last name of it, but uh, Scripture does not contradict Scripture. And she points out that in Article 20, for example, of the Anglican Church, through nine articles, she says, neither may it, the church, so expound one place of Scripture so that it's repugnant to another. In other words, if, if the church is going to communicate or expound a particular passage uh, that seems to be uh, in, in contradiction to another and kind of play that out, then that's, that's, that's not taking Scripture in a proper or accurate sense. Or she goes on to say that what is clear in the Bible really ultimately interprets that which is cloudy. So have you ever read a passage in the Bible that's really cloudy, really fuzzy, very difficult to understand? Well, a good hermeneutical principle is to allow other portions of Scripture that bring more light to inform that particular passage that's a little bit cloudy or fuzzy or difficult to understand. That's basically what it's saying. Second principle to think about is uh, that every text must be understood in its original context, historical, cultural, and social. In other words, first and foremost, the Bible was written to a, a particular group of people. Uh, and it was written in a particular form of, uh, or genre of, of language or literature. And it's important when you're reading the Bible to understand what form of literature it was written in to whom it was being written to, and then begin to ask those questions. Here's a couple of things she points out within the book. What's the author's original intent of each book? The passage, the sentence, and what did it mean in the original, to the original hearers? These are important questions to ask. See, for the most part, many of us have been trained to think about when we pick up our Bible, we just read it, and we allow it, and we just kind of look at it and say, well, what is it saying to me? That's not a bad question, by the way. But that question should be within an order of other subsequent questions. Because what can happen is that when we open our Bible and we're just like, what's the Bible saying to me directly only right now, is you may oftentimes omit the fact that there are other ways in which the, the Bible has an important uh, place to be speaking to another uh, society and culture. Now from that, we can then, once we understand those points, we can then begin to ask, what is this saying to me? It's an important thing to think about and consider at some point. But another thing she writes is that how do we faithfully obey what we discover to be God's revealed will, even if our cultural situation has changed? How do we do that? Can, next slide, I think I have a, another quote from her. Nope, sorry. Do I have another quote from her somewhere? Yes, here we go. I'll read this. She says, God is not capable of new and improved anything. 
because his perfection is such that any change would be a step away from complete holiness, complete love, complete justice, and complete mercy. So in other words, the point that she's making is that God spoke something. So the, the quest, the chore, the task, the role, the joy of you and I is to, is to first and foremost ask the question, what did God say? And then begin to, by way of this process, this interpretive process of asking the questions, and it'll then allow the text to begin to inform us, and ultimately, as we allow the door of our heart to be open to it, then begin to transform us. So the third principle is this. Uh, she basically just describes that common sense is, is ultimately necessary. That God inspired human beings to write his revelation. Um, and she says that the Bible is written by humans using human language. Yet if God doesn't change and in his providence assembled a book to guide his people in all times, in all places, then what he revealed yesterday about his character and his design for his creatures will not be changed today. So in other words, there are these standards and principles that God has written across the board for all time. There are some things, obviously, that have cultural application. Uh, but again, to understand what those are requires a sense of like digging deeper into the text, not pulling away from it, not walking away from passages that seem hard or fuzzy or difficult to understand. I think, unfortunately, that's the way we oftentimes approach Scripture. Because on one hand, we either just simply don't read it because we're a little bit put off or afraid of it, or two, if we do read it, we come across a passage that seems really outdated or really difficult to understand, and we pull away from it. And my, my suggestion to you is, is don't do that. Allow this practice of delving deep into what Scripture has to say because God's Word is wor our words of life. It's this GPS. It's this navigational system that we need to have downloaded into our heart in order to bring about some level of, of balance and direction and guidance within a world that's filled with a variety of cultural cross-currents. So... Next thing I'm going to jump into are some foundational principles. Now, there's a lot of different passages that we can look at, um, but I want to basically begin with the very first one. This is out of Genesis chapter 1. We'll turn there if you would. So why don't you turn your Bibles real quick to Genesis chapter 1. We'll be focusing on Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 27, and 28. And that's what we'll look at, and then we'll kind of hopefully wrap things up time-wise. And we're doing fairly decent. Maybe even if we have time, maybe answer some questions. Hopefully. Hopefully. I'm not promising, but we'll see. Okay. Uh, okay, first of all, um, I want to read this. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, Then God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female, God created them. Next slide. Verse 28 says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, um, much of what I'm about to say right now is, is, uh, was, was downloaded to me by way of, of Tim Keller in a message that he preached that it was super helpful for me. So you're, you're welcome. I'm just regurgitating it back to you. So here you go. So, number one, he describes that first and foremost that male and female are absolutely equal in dignity before God. Male and female, both men and women, absolutely 100% equal in dignity, value, and you can even add respect before God. Any type of culture or system or imported idea or traditional mindset that basically says, no, no, men are better than women is inaccurate. 
It's as simple as that. It's inaccurate. It's not consistent with the revealed word of God. Any form where a man might look at this and say, well, a woman is far less than a man, which kind of raises an important question. That One of the questions that was asked within the slide is, uh, what about the passage where it says a woman is a weaker vessel? Hopefully I'll be able to get to that. But it absolutely does not mean that she is lesser in value, first of all. does not mean that. But the point of the matter is, is that male and female are absolutely equal in dignity. Both men and women are both called by God to rule. Both of them, as he describes. Listen again, Genesis 1.28. God blessed them both, both of them. And he, says, and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. This was a command by God to both of them. <laughs> Think about that. But again, here's where it gets really interesting. What does it mean to have dominion and exercise rule and subdue it over the earth and so on and so forth? Um, but again, these, these are where the questions kind of expand and blossom and flower and mushroom, however you want to think about it. But at the end of the day, one of the first things that we notice is that male and female are absolutely equal in dignity before God. In some ways, Keller goes on and points out, he says, this actually cuts against a traditionalist mindset. The traditionalist is kind of like mid-20th century, right? This is, if you're wondering what mid-20th century is, it's, it's the leave it to beaver home where the woman is always in an apron, in high heels, she makes peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for her husband and the rest of the kids, only to be stepped on and just simply be nothing more than a sex object throughout all the day because her sole purpose in life is to do nothing but please men. That's her whole job in life is just pleasing men. So he actually says, this actually cuts against a traditionalist view, which uh, tends to see women as subservient to men, uh, and or her domain is to be nothing more than exclusively within the home as a doormat serving men. He actually says, this actually cuts against that. Because what's a woman's role? Oh my gosh, to rule. To subdue the earth. Are you kidding me? This is, in, this is incredible. Like, he's literally raising women to this degree that is insane. It's extremely liberating to women, especially, again, so where do some of these cultural constructs come to push women down? Not from scripture. God raises women. There's all sorts of cultural constructs that push women down and treats them as nothing more as objects, uh, subservient objects, and so on and so forth. So it goes on to say, Next one is maleness and femaleness. The second one, maleness and femaleness are irreducible, and he goes on to say, and not interchangeable. They're irreducible, meaning you can't keep uh, dividing it down further, and ultimately not interchangeable. Uh, He gets this from actually verse 27, where it says, male and female, God created them. In other words, he describes that this actually, uh, God didn't create them first as human beings, and then assign maleness or femaleness to them. They're not humans first, and then determined based upon however God decides, maleness and femaleness, that God created them, male and female. Now, he actually goes on to say that this actually cuts against the postmodern and or the uh, progressive view, which basically sees maleness and femaleness as uh, subjectively based within a cultural construct. That's what, for the most part, culture and society is telling us today, that maleness and femaleness are not assigned at birth, They are cultural constructs that you determine the older you get based upon however it is that you decide to choose to think about and live according to maleness or femaleness. And he's actually describing, I think the way he kind of puts it here, is this actually cuts against this progressive slash modernist mindset that views it as nothing more than a cultural construct. The third thing 
is that maleness and femaleness working together, this is really important, maleness and femaleness actually working together rightly reflect the triune nature of God. So this is where he's describing, is that as he points this out, is that because men and women, they image God, which just simply means reflect God, and we looked at a video a couple weeks ago, and if you hadn't seen that, if you weren't here, go to the Bible Project, I don't think, jointhebibleproject.com or something like that, and there's a great video on there called The Image of God, watch it, check it out. But because men and women, they image God, it means that God possesses all the traits, so think about this, God, God possesses the mind-blowing thing to consider, God possesses all the traits of maleness and femaleness within himself, within himself. And as male and female live in complementary relationship together towards one another, they rightly reflect the fullness of God's triune character. Does that make sense? This is what the Bible is describing. This is how the Bible would understand and think about this concept of maleness and femaleness. So therefore, we see that man is ultimately given authority. I want to wrap this up and uh, finalize a lot of this. Because for one, to draw some conclusions and to, again, begin to maybe even raise more questions for you, but I'm going to at least draw some fine points to consider and think about this. What this really clearly seems to be putting forth is that Genesis 1 is really less of this multiple choice quiz on gender and more of a story. It's this idea that in the beginning, God created both male and female, that God made Adam first and he set him in the garden all by himself to work it, to care for it. We don't have any idea how long that man was in the garden before God created female from him. And the important thing is we don't know whether today, a month, a year, there's, there's a lot of animals that obviously needed to be named according to the Genesis story. Um, why did God make Adam first and then Eve? Why, why wait? Why have some form of a, a time duration point? We don't, we don't really know. We don't know the answer to these questions. But we do know that God designed it that way. And this is what the Genesis story, the Bible story, not just Genesis, but the whole Bible story seems to lay out as a pattern. A couple of things to think about and consider before we wrap this up. One of the things that we do know is that in Hebrew literature and Hebrew worldview, the mindset is that the firstborn ultimately was the heir of all the inheritance. That whatever the firstborn was, their role within that culture and society was to be the firstborn, to have authority, to have a sense of, of leadership, of headship over a family inheritance. But this was not necessarily in any way stating that the firstborn was better than any other of the other siblings or family members. In fact, at times, God loved to invert this framework. And God oftentimes would go around the firstborn and say, I want to bless the secondborn just because I can, just because I'm God, just to prove that at the end of the day, I'm the one that ultimately establishes and orients and, re, and, and lines all these things up according to the way that I choose and the way that I design. And so the thing that to consider is that in fact, we, we see that God working this way. The Apostle Paul, Jesus in the New Testament, they definitely play this concept of Genesis 1 into all throughout the New Testament. Paul's writings on the subject of women and men, maleness and femaleness, the roles within the church, um, all of these things are deeply influenced by this order that God set in creation. Deeply influenced by this. All throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see this. That we see gender roles as being something that go all the way back to this Genesis story. So, 
Paul's theology, there's a couple other passages that addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Timothy chapter 2. There's a handful of other ones that probably over the next couple of weeks, at least maybe next week, I might end up spending going uh, further in detail on some of these things. Um, but really, one of the things I want to consider and think about as I wrap this up, if you think that I'm reading too much into the story, here's a few uh, other signs that are pointing back in the same direction. So number one, Eve is made from Adam says that she actually comes from his rib. Guys, don't get too excited about this because you were formed from the dirt. So I don't know what that says other than the fact that you have no place to boast. This is not about you looking at yourself as somehow being better than or greater than. You're from the, from the dirt. Woman came from you, the way the biblical story describes this. Um, Eve is named by Adam. Eve is named by Adam. And it goes on to say, we see this idea that she uh, shall be called a woman. In this ancient Near East, naming ultimately is a sign of, of authority and relationship. Um, thirdly, we see that Adam leaves his father and mother and ultimately his gaming system and his free rent under mom and dad's house in order to cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's an order to these things that God seemed to have set forth in Scripture and say this is how it plays out. So, fine point. At the end of the day, we see what God is establishing is this order where men are to lead. There's a sense of authority that God gives them. And oftentimes men have subdued or not treated rightly this role of authority. And it oftentimes throws everything askew. So the idea, the subject of leading, for the most part, or authority in our culture, is in some ways entirely lost its meaning. Because we tend to think of authority and leadership as a means to leverage something from you for my own benefit. That is not leadership. That is not authority according to the Bible. That's just simply a deeply distorted and skewed understanding that has played out within our culture. And in my opinion, as I said last week, in many ways, has actually led to the feminist movements in our culture because they are, for the most part, the beginning at least, they were responses to male domination and male destructiveness towards females, which God deeply cares about. So the idea that we see is in Scripture, and I want to wrap this up with uh, just, again, another few quotes from these guys, and I'm done. So again, Kathy Keller, she says, Jesus redefined authority when he washed his disciples' feet. So what does authority look like? Men, looks like you washing the feet of the one you love. Looks like you serving. Looks like you giving yourself away. Biblical leadership and authority is about giving oneself away sacrificially for the other's benefit and good. Both male and female are actually called by God to sacrifice in different ways. The woman gets to play the Jesus role in submission, submitting herself to this authority, which is in really at the end of the day, the men and the elders of the church, which we'll unpack in weeks to come, they get to play the Jesus role in sacrificially serving and laying their life down for the other. What happens when this order in creation that God established gets distorted? You have chaos, and you have reaction against the chaos, and you have deep brokenness, you have abuse, you have idolatry, you have a distortion of good things. You have good things move to the place of God things. It's called idolatry. And that idolatry causes destruction and ruin. And God's aim from the very beginning was to unmask and tear down those idols and ultimately to reset 
a brand new order, by creating a brand new humanity in the way that the author of creation does all this. The authority over all authorities, the way the Bible describes it, the king above all kings, the creator over all things, steps into this world and allows the authorities that are in place by way of government and by way of the high priest to do what those authority figures do, which is crush and condemn and distort and destroy. He allows them to do all that they do entirely to him. So he absorbs the brokenness, the crushing, the abuse, the betrayal, the suffering, the death, the destruction, ultimately to bear our sin, to wash our feet, to cleanse our conscience, to set us on a path whereby we can be made whole, and then brings us into a brand new family whereby these good things that oftentimes get elevated to God things, a.k.a. idolatry, are placed into the proper format, and therefore you have a new society that is intended by God to bring about life rather than destruction. So, the invitation of the gospel is always about not just simply recognizing certain principles that you're not living up to and trying to live according to them, but it also involves you recognizing idols and idolatrous ways in your life and confessing those things to God and saying, God, I want you to inform my heart, to reshape my thinking, to transform me, to wash me clean, to make me new, to give me life. The invitation of the gospel is always an invitation to respond to God, to trust him. So that's what we're going to do right now. Again, I realize there may be lots of questions that you guys might have now. Uh, Maybe if we have some time afterwards, I'll try to answer some of these. But I want to respond right now to just sing to God, to worship him, partake of communion. So why don't we all stand? And if you're here and there are circumstances and situations that are maybe going on in your life and you just need prayer, it's a way for us to be ministered to, to be prayed for. And if there are things that are in your life and you just want to get out on the table to do business with God, the invitation for you is to come to the front. We'll have some leaders up in the front here. I'll be up in the front here. I would love to pray with you. You can partake of communion as a way of responding to this God that lays his life down for you. And the image that I want to leave you with more than anything else, I want you to, I want you to consider, again, what true authority looks like. True authority takes upon itself the embodiment of Jesus. How did Jesus use his authority? To bear your sin, to leverage forth your blessing. And he calls us to follow him, to trust him. So, God, we come to you right now and our hearts are open. And we just say we want to be transformed. God, we recognize that we, for the most part, many of us, we've been shaped by cross currents of our culture. And we want our hearts to be transformed by the living word, the king of kings. So we submit our hearts, our minds, our thoughts to you right now. And in this moment, God, we give to you our worship. We proclaim your name as good and worthy.